Um, now I'm happy to introduce someone who many of you probably feel like I feel about, which is the first time I met him, I just went, oh, I know you, <laughs> and um, felt like I had known him, and I was glad that he was back in my life and in my presence. And he's written a very sweet book, very touching, very moving, very painful, and um, very inspirational, called In the Lap of the Buddha. And he is also working on his memoirs, um, Beyond My Wildest Dream, Dreams. And um, he is here tonight. Many of us have come to feel very close to Gavin Harrison in the only few years that he's been in Northampton. Um, we're thrilled to have him tonight. When this book first came out, um, year and a half ago or so, three years ago, um, but I think it was only a couple years ago that we wanted to have him at the store and it was a difficult time in his life and so it was with great joy that we are happy to have him and welcome him here tonight. In addition, his mother, Adelaide, is uh, also with us from South Africa visiting and it is with great joy that we all welcome her as well. Thank you for being here. And around the sanctuary, you will see uh, drawings and writings on this little white shelf, which are by Reverend James Monroe and Jim is here somewhere. He's way in the back. Uh, Jim is the pastor at St. John's Episcopal Church, and I've had the opportunity to hear him at various holidays and have been uh, also touched and inspired by his work uh, on the pulpit. And he has these very beautiful, as you can see on the first pass, uh, drawings which he did while working in an AIDS ward in a New York City hospital. So uh, do please get around uh, afterwards and, and take a look at those. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his work and now. And then uh, we'll move on to hearing from my friend and spiritual companion on the path, Gavin Harrison. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great privilege to, to be here with Gavin this evening with all of you. Thank you to Dee and to everyone beyond words for this privilege of being here and to the people of the Unitarian Society. Several uh, years ago, I had a study leave from my church, and so I spent a few months at a hospital in New York City volunteering on the AIDS ward. I wasn't Father Jim the priest, I was just Jim the volunteer. And I uh, worked uh, all day and on, on weekends uh, bringing newspapers to patients, talking to them, with them if they wanted to talk, and just getting to know them. Um, as I got to know them, I asked if I could sketch them and that became a wonderful means of connecting with some of them. And so drawings of some of them you see around the sides of the room. These are all patients from the AIDS ward. Also, I wrote down things they said. And so beside each drawing is a little quote from, uh, from them. The doctors, the nurses, the other volunteers were wonderful witnesses to me of the worth value and that was going on in that ward, but it was from the patients themselves that I received an extraordinary gift of, of understanding more about dignity 
and laughter. Never laughed as hard in my life as I did on that AIDS ward. Um, having worth as a human being and experiencing joy at a depth that I've not known before. All 19 of the patients that are pictured in these drawings um, have died, and the exhibit as it is, is is dedicated to them with thanksgiving for their witness to me and to all of us. Now it's my privilege to um, welcome Gavin here as well. I've known Gavin just for a few years. Some of you have known him a lot longer than that. But Gavin also is one who teaches me about dignity and laughter and having worth and experiencing real joy. So Gavin, thank you. Wow. I am so grateful and thankful to be here this evening. I'm so moved by your presence here, by this gathering. It's just an unforgettable moment. There are friends and family from all the corners of my life here tonight. I never thought this would ever happen. I'd like to ask if we may, uh, in the beginning this evening, spend a few minutes together uh, in, in silence. During these few minutes, I'll offer just very abbreviated uh, meditations or guidelines. So those of you who are not familiar with Buddhist meditation will just get an inkling of what it's about. So just for a couple of minutes, if you feel comfortable, I invite you to close your eyes and um, let's uh, arrive together here now. And during these minutes, you may wish to allow your attention to rest on the experience of breathing. Being aware, being present, mindful of the changing sensations of the breath as it enters and as it leaves your body. Just experiencing the truth of your body breathing itself here, now, together.
the last 17, 18 years have begun to remember my own son. When I was diagnosed with AIDS in 1989, nine or ten years after that time, it felt so urgent that I hear my song as clearly and as soon as possible. And for me, I, I feel that my song whispers and calls me to know as truly as possible who I am beyond all the labels I carry of myself, all the expectations that I and others have of me. Who am I beyond the ideas, all the, all the personas that I carry? Beyond Gavin the gay man, Gavin the person living with AIDS, Gavin the white South African, Gavin the certified public accountant, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I beyond Gavin the Buddhist meditation teacher and Gavin the author? Within the melody of my song, I, I hear a promise of true love and a, a real happiness and that peace which passeth all understanding. I want so much to know who I am beyond the drama and the catastrophe of living with AIDS. I want to live an honest and authentic life that is true to the emergence of my song at last beginning to reveal itself of having been forgotten for so long. When I first heard the Dharma uh, in 1980 on that mountaintop, the Dharma is the uh, classical word to describe the teachings of the Buddha. When I heard those teachings, I wept profusely and uncontrollably. I felt that at long last, after all these years, I was hearing something that felt old and so familiar to me. I was riveted by the possibilities of this, this utterly simple meditation practice that I'd been introduced to. The practice of awareness, mindfulness, presence seemed to promise that peace and joy and understanding that I'd yearned for for so long. And even way back then in 1980, I believe I had intimations of a freedom that might one day be possible for me. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. When In the Lap of the Buddha was published in 1994, and it is a retelling of the basic teachings of the Buddha from uh, largely my own experience, or fully from my own experience, I was totally unprepared for the, the hurricane and the whirlwind that swirled around the publication of that book. It was immensely difficult. And instead of the celebration that we were going to have here at that time, I uh, checked into the Cooley Dickinson Hospital instead, uh, one mile up the road, on, up to the fourth floor of the Cooley Dickinson Hospital. I was, I was very, very sick. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to be here tonight and to Dee and to, to Jeff and my other friends at Beyond Words because uh, uh, their, their willingness to sort of throw the dice again and see if it would be possible to get me here even though it's three years later is something that I'm really grateful for. You know, I feel it's so important for us in community as we, we are here tonight and as I look out and see so many familiar 
loving faces. This feels so much like uh, a gathering of our community. It feels important to me that we do venture out, that we go perhaps way beyond the embrace, uh, the circle of our family, our friends, our community. And we explore our edges, we walk our fires, we stumble, we fall, we come flat on our face. And then we come back to our community and tell our stories and listen that carefully that hopefully we might not make the same mistakes that others have made that have gone before us. And so that is what I see my mission tonight be with you, is just to tell my story a little more. So I checked into the Cooley Dickinson, the fourth floor, it was sort of AIDS ward at the time, and uh, I was really sick. My temperature was 106.7, and uh, I know that some of my friends and my doctors thought that perhaps I was checking out at the time. I was, it was high fever, sweating a lot. I dropped 25 pounds, uh, and in the middle of all of this, one day I sort of woke up, and beside me was a total stranger. He was a little bald and um, a little gray, and I'd never seen him in my life before, but the eyes that looked back at me were two of the kindest and dearest eyes I'd ever seen. And he turned out to be Jim Monroe from the Episcopal Church up the road. And it was then that uh, afternoon that I met him, and we've become good friends over the last years. And I feel so privileged to be associated with his really beautiful artwork, inspiring artwork that graces the walls of this building this evening. This was my first opportunistic infection with AIDS. And in the middle of this, my mind was very dull, very cloudy. One night I woke from the nightmare with a jolt and my mind was crystal clear and surrounding me in every direction was a deep velvet blackness, quite unlike anything I'd seen before. And below me and stretching out way into the distance was this river of what looked like to be sort of salmon apricot colored rose petals stretching out before me. The petals shimmered and glowed in contrast with the deep black that surrounded me. I was sitting on this river, of course I was cross-legged in the lotus position, you know, a fraction above this river, and I was silently skimming the water and moving forward. And at the point where the river disappeared in a, in, in a pinprick ahead of me, this great white light shone back towards me. And the closer I approached this light, the stronger I felt its impact. The white light embraced me with an experience of limitless, full, and absolute, unconditional love, quite unlike anything I've experienced before. And the closer I got to that light, the deeper the sense of coming home. I felt bathed and saturated and infused with that light. And a feeling of deep protection and safety embraced me as the light reached out to me and as I moved on towards it. My heart erupted with a great joy as I remembered this love that I'd long forgotten. 
And then at this point, my mind got really busy. It said, well, this is so cool. <laughs> it's like, I'm dying, and I haven't suffered like so many of my friends have. It hasn't really been all that bad. There's this beautiful light. I'm feeling wonderful. I'm ready to go. I'm willing to check out right here and now, so let's get going. And it was like, as soon as this started, I did this like 90 degree turn into the black. I was back in my bed in the hospital. <laughs> All these nurses were like gathered around the bed with their life support uh, uh, equipment and uh, clearly there had been a crisis going on that I didn't know about. <laughs> and um, my fever broke and that was the end of the story. <laughs> but my overwhelming memory of that night was of that uh, was of that white light. I really have no idea in the end what happened. But I'm left with an unshakable knowing that the movement towards the idea of death, in some unfathomable way for me, is a movement to a profound love and a boundless love that I long forgotten. And at any time I'm able, if I remember, to evoke the joy, the relief, and the gladness that I felt that night in the hospital. For me, the fear of death is diluted by the indelible impression left by that experience. And more than ever, death these days feels like a short step from one garden to another a return to a love long forgotten. And particularly since that night, what increasingly defines my life these days and what is at the center of my efforts in writing the second book, Beyond My Wildest Dreams, is an unquenchable thirst to know the deepest and most unconditional love possible within the fire of the drama and the complexity of my life now. I believe it is my birthright to know this love, both within and outside of myself, along with and certainly not defined by the circumstances under which I live. These days, the lens through which I experience my life seems to be steadily shifting in some wordless way from darkness into light as I begin to remember the strings of my song. And the words of that song remind me always when I remember to listen to them that fundamentally who I am is a simple and great and pure love that I long forgot. My song reminds me to remember that love that has always been there, it's been hidden, it's been denied, it's been swamped by the circumstances of my life, perhaps smothered by the fear and confusion that rages through, but blessedly ready always to return to the light of day. Gone is what feels to me to be the absurd notion that this love needs to be cultivated, that it needs to be accumulated, that it needs to be found outside of myself. My son was simply always there. I just forgot, and now I begin to remember again. And for me, the highest expression of love 
is awareness. To be present with oneself fully and with another, for me, is the truest kind of love. The practice of meditation is, I believe, a practice of love. Unconscious love, I think, is an impossibility. It's an oxymoron. To be awake is to love. We just forget and then we remember once more. In the lap of the Buddha is entering its fourth printing soon and it content continues to sell steadily. I receive mail from all over the world regularly. It almost got translated into Polish and Italian, but it didn't quite make it. And to my surprise, the mail comes not only from people with AIDS and people who are dealing with abuse, but from everyone, everywhere. It is so humbling and so deeply moving to receive these letters. And I am so grateful for having had the privilege to share the Dharma, the teaching of the Buddha, and to serve in this way. Now beyond my wildest dreams, which is the manuscript I'm working on now, is an altogether different endeavor, really. It's the third manuscript since In the Lap of the Buddha was published. It's been really a long haul, and finally, it's quite different from the first book. Dislodging my allegiance to In the Lap of the Buddha has been difficult and really quite scary. It worked, and it was very hard for me to let go of the first book. This book is a memoir, as Dee said, of my spiritual journey and my life. It doesn't yet have a publisher because I haven't sent it to a publisher yet. And in the writing of, of this memoir, and I'm sure a lot of you know, memoirs are sort of the thing at the moment. There are a lot of them out there. has required a repopulating of earlier times in my life that has really not been easy at all writing from times long ago and re-experiencing the emotions of that time has called upon a dogged resolve that has left me often feeling quite frazzled, depleted, and humble. Ironically, the meditation practice both helps me return to earlier times with a clarity and a vividness that might not have before been possible and to have presence with the feelings of that time. But it also brings a sensitivity and a vulnerability that has me often stepping back and backing off and taking a vacation when you know, another part of me really would much prefer to hang in there and keep going and get it over with. It's been an enormous journey in letting go and just being patient and trusting. But I do sense a huge unburdening in this process, an acknowledging of, of history and a weight that I've carried for a long time. There are several defining themes in this book, and I'm going to be reading a little bit from it in a moment. These themes that course the pages of Beyond My Wildest Dreams are, first of all, um, forgiveness. It, I could not have written this book at any other time of my life. In the last years, there's been a real groundswell of forgiveness that has blossomed uh, in my life. 
And this has enabled me to step beyond, to quite a significant degree, the nightmare of certain aspects of my history. And I've been finally, at last, able to move on in love, really, without the bitterness and the thirst for vengeance and blame that has gridlocked me in an unforgiving history for so long. Forgiving my mother, who is here this evening, and then my father and the others who abused me when I was a child, has been a fire and I hope also a triumph that will leap from the pages of this book. Forgiveness, in my experience, is such a fiery journey. This book is also a celebration of the meditation practice. It has worked for me and I'm so grateful for it. My faith in the teachings of the Buddha and in the power of awareness, compassion and understanding really feels unshakable these days. In spite of AIDS, in spite of the sexual abuse, in spite of growing up in South Africa, of being exiled and thrown out of my country, in spite of the difficulties and the challenges in my life, I quite simply am today happier than I've ever been before. And I hope that beyond my wildest dreams will be a testimony and a document of the triumph of these ancient teachings, blessedly alive to whatever degree they are in my life today. I've endeavored to recall in this book what to me feels really like an unfathomable mystery. And in the end, it's really quite beyond words. I feel that in my willingness to face the truth of my mortality or the illusion of my mortality, it is my experience that blessedly, thankfully, and miraculously, I have unleashed an alchemy of the heart that has birthed all the peace, ease, and contentment that I always yearned for. And the irony is really manifest. What I feared most turns out to have held the key to my birthright, which has eluded me for so long. Coming face to face to the extent that has been possible with death has birthed a fullness of life for me, unfettered by the thirst for a security and certainty that was an impossibility right from the very beginning. So if I may speak inclusively, finally, for a moment, it seems that finally, in the end, the joke is on all of us. In collusion with the fear of our death, we paint a nightmare in our minds, and then we recoil from the brushstrokes of our handiwork. While all the time, behind and beyond the illusion, ironically, are all the blessings that we've always prayed for. I know today a degree of contentment, ease, peace, equanimity, and quiet joy in life, not all the time, but so much more than I ever thought would be possible. And this exceeds by far my wildest dreams of what I thought would ever be possible in my life, with or without the experience of AIDS in my life. And while my life may seem to be the designated tragedy, the 
identified tragedy, the big joke really is that we're all in the end in the same boat. Perhaps I just feel the waves a little more distinctly than most people do these days. And so this is really what is at the heart of this manuscript, uh, uh, Beyond My Wildest Dreams, that I bring to you this evening. Is the sound working okay? It seems to get sort of loud and low. It's not happening out there? Okay. What I want to try and do is just give you some idea of the sort of scope of, of this book, and then I'm just going to read a little bit from the manuscript here and there. So after that incredible retreat in Itopo in 1980, it used to be so much better than Itopo. I speak Zulu. Um, I decided to stay on there for a year and I spent the happiest year of my life on that mountain. I lived with my friend Anthony way up on this misty hill and um, we had many adventures. One, one winter night the fierce wind blew up the mountain and roared through the creaking and groaning forests all around my room. Branches crashed to the ground and the long dry grass screamed in the fury of the winds. Then above the thunder and noise the wailing began. I leapt out of bed and my worst fears were manifest down in the valley. Towering flames were rushing towards us, smoke billowing to the sky. I saw the silhouette of hundreds of shouting women, men, children running with containers of water on their heads to douse the flames. Antony and I joined the crowd. We ran in and out of the fire, our faces as black, exhausted, and sweaty as our fellow firefighters. In the morning, fire subdued, fresh and shaved, exhausted. I sat in meditation with Antony alongside me. When I took refuge in my mountaintop community, I felt myself filled with tears and emotion. For deep into my tired and exhilarated heart, I truly welcomed, probably for the first time, all my fellow black brothers and sisters into my heart. In the fire of our wild and dangerous night, I believe I bridged the final vestiges of apartheid lingering within me and had taken my place in the community of Africans. All the buildings remained standing after the fire but the walls of separation of apartheid within my heart seemed to fall and crumble forever. I spent a year there and then returned to New York City where I've been living for three or four years. What I've done in this book is I've gone back to earlier times in my life and kind of recaptured them as they presented themselves in the course of my meditation practice. So that's how I tell a fuller story of my life, but the sort of thread through it is of the journey. So I left the mountain in Kopo, returned to New York City, and to the life I'd left before, and uh, was quite excited about returning to Fire Island, where I and my 
gay brothers used to spend a lot of time in Studio 54 and all the gay clubs in the city. I had this beautiful apartment overlooking the Hudson River and the Statue of Liberty and out my bedroom I saw the Empire State Building. had all my friends. I was looking forward to the razzle-dazzle of Broadway. And to my shock and sort of terror, I realized that it had absolutely and utterly no meaning in mind. Nothing in New York meant a single thing to me anymore. And I realized that really what I wanted to do was I wanted to go deeper in the journey. I wanted to go further. And so what I did was I called my brother who just immigrated to Canada and gave him everything I owned. I had treasures from Iran. I lived in Iran for four years. I had all these carpets and you know my stuff from Africa and Europe and other places where I traveled. And I gave everything to him. He drove north with uh, a U-Haul full of the stuff. And um, I decided to shave my head and ordain uh, as a Buddhist monk. And um, it was in the few days prior to entering a Burmese forest monastery that I made uh, my single, probably most fateful mistake. I had this wild sexual fling before entering the holy life. And it was during those days that I was infected with AIDS. And this was long before we even knew that there was a virus. It was long before the word AIDS had entered our vocabulary or we even knew about safer sex. And um, it was called GRID then, G-R-I-D, Gay-Related Immune Disorder. There were just murmurings of something going on in the community. This was 1981. And, uh, and so I shaved my head. I, I, entered this Burmese forest monastery and began the holy life. But in truth, all the while, from the very beginning in that monastery, the virus in my body were already locked in a deadly conflict. We now know that it had already begun right at the, at the beginning of my time there. And it's ironic that the principal practice that I did at that monastery were ancient practices taught by the Buddha on death awareness, practices designed specifically to bring one to a deeper understanding and appreciation of the fact that, that life is limited and fragile and that it's extremely important that we come to know ourselves as soon as possible because this opportunity to live and to love and be awake is so precious. And so my time in the monastery, I lived in the forest, was spent almost exclusively doing these practices. And after almost a year, I left the monastery and came here to the East Coast uh, to the Insight Meditation Society in Barrow, Massachusetts. And it was there that I reconnected with Joseph Goldstein again and began a three-month meditation retreat. And for those of you that don't know, IMS, as it is called, is probably the finest institution in the world for practicing deep, silent uh, meditation with the support of teachers. The silence is absolutely incredible privilege to be there. And so it was wonderful to continue practicing now with the uh, Western teachers. They'd all been Burmese masters in the monastery. And uh, uh, I was very happy there. I loved walking in the rain. When the fall rains came and everyone rushed indoors, I headed out into the downpour and splashed my way down to the lake. At this time, my awareness was crisp and clear. 
Beside the water there was presence with the sound of every raindrop falling around me. Sitting at the lakeside watching the myriad circles within circles on the surface of the water, hearing the patter of the downfall, I slipped into what felt like a microscopic awareness of all the sounds, sights and sensations and the concurrent knowing of them. I became aware for the first time of consciousness. Consciousness is the knowing faculty of mind. In every moment there is an object arising at the sense door and the knowing of it. There is a sound and the knowing of it and a sight and the knowing of that too. And beside the lake I experienced both the sounds and the sights and the knowing of each one, simultaneous, vivid, concurrent and relentless. An inner sense of vacancy and emptiness deepened and broadened. As I remained beside the water, Gavin was nowhere in the vicinity. There was no personal experience of seeing, doing, listening or thinking. Purely empty phenomena arising and vanishing and unknowing of every one of them. So I returned to the meditation center, sodden, shaken, full with faith and joy a long while afterwards. I knew beyond doubt that at last I was on my way home. Though I had no idea what lay ahead, I no longer felt like the last and bewildered boy I once was. I returned to the building that was already becoming the most important spiritual home I'd ever had, and my heart overflowed with gratitude for the sense of possibility that permeated my life now. But it wasn't all easy. That few months retreat turned into 18 consecutive months of silent uh, practice, a lot of it on my own. I felt once more one day the loneliness and isolation of my school years. And at this point in the manuscript, I go back and talk about my life at an all-boys boarding school in South Africa, where I was sent when I was um, nine years old. I was there for seven years. Most shattering was the re-experience of all the humiliation, shame, and confusion I felt when the lights went out in the dormitory and all the boys were meant to fall asleep for the night. Now in Massachusetts, I remembered the terror of feeling all the boys force themselves into my bed night after night. As they fondled, kissed, hurt, and masturbated me, and as they bullied me into a compliance with their desires, I felt once again the terror I'd known all those years before as a young boy. I was petrified then that we would be discovered. Pulled down into the frozen basement and huddled in a corner all alone. I felt safe and isolated there as I did years before when I retreated to my hiding places around the school, safe for a while from those that tormented me. Under the retreat buildings, ice twinkled now on the pipes and the frigid concrete floor chilled my body. It was there that I wept and wailed and shuddered in the face of what had occurred all those years before. I'd forgotten so much of it. I flailed wildly at the ghosts that still haunted me after all the years had passed. And so now at IMS in the dead of winter, as the snow fell outside, I began the long journey home to the healing I'd waited such a long time for. It was 1982, 
And really, over the years, particularly the years immediately following, this was the issue that I was working with a lot in um, meditation. Uh, the sexual abuse and the feelings and the re-experiencing of, uh, of those times, both emotionally and, and in memory. And another thing that was happening in my life at this time was that friends of mine from the four corners of the world, South Africa, Iran, North America, England, Europe, were beginning to get sick and die. And by 1987, 1988, I'd lost over 30 friends to AIDS. It was beginning to feel like a holocaust was happening around me. I became terrified to call a friend that I hadn't heard from for a while, not knowing what information would come my way. I was living in Boston at the time, working as a certified accountant. Um, I had a financial practice. I was uh, earning as much money as I needed to in order to do long periods of meditation. And I spent a lot of time at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center and met Larry Rosenberg, the teacher there, and was telling him about all these friends that were dying and just how heartbroken I was and the extent of the grief that I was experiencing. And he suggested that I use some death awareness reflections that the Buddha taught as a way for me to come to deeper terms with the pain that really felt as though it was tearing my heart apart. Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge is one of the most beautiful places in the world. In the springtime after the long cold winter, it is transformed into a dazzling spectacle of color and joy as trees and flowers erupt into a kaleidoscope of blossoms in every corner of the place. Tombs, mausoleums, funeral stones, obelisks, ponds, hills, valleys, and towers offer a million little places to hide, nap, and meditate. And it was to the cemetery that I most often took my reflections. There I repeated the words of the Buddha while at the same time appreciating the irrefutable evidence around me of so many people who like me at once lived and who were now dead and gone. And when the first frost fell and came to the cemetery, it seemed almost impossible that a few weeks earlier, the place had been so vibrantly alive and colorful. Walking among the tombstones in the gray and chill of approaching winter, life felt so fleeting, so unreliable and dear and precious. Huddled in a sunny corner of the cemetery, carefully out of sight of the patrolling groundsman, I would rest in the increasing sense of fragility that gripped me. Life now felt so insecure, so utterly precious, and a blessing beyond measure. 1989 was the year from hell, so you might want to fasten your seatbelts here. I uh, got word that two of my closest friends in South Africa were dying of AIDS, and I flew back to South Africa to be with Roy and Michael. And as my plane touched down at the Unsmuts Airport in Johannesburg, Roy died. And when I got to customs and called the hospital, because I was going to go there straight from the airport, they told me that he just passed away. It was really difficult. In South Africa, many years before, Roy and I one day visited his elderly Afrikaans mother for lunch. Roy and I were lovers for a number of years. 
She was a wildly outrageous woman, and over the meal she held out a local tabloid magazine as she fed us fried dough and Afrikaner beef sausage with gravy. She held up glassy pictures of the emaciated skeletal men riding in beds connected to life support equipment, while all around them doctors in masks and gloves gazed down at the pain and anguish before them. These fiery red words emblazoned across the page read, Gay play, this is a punishment for their sins. In Afrikaans, she teased us. Opa Silamofis, did sell your cray. Careful, you faggots, it will get you. I never met with his mother after Roy died. It was a very difficult visit. My friend Michael died also, and I went to spend a couple of weeks with my parents in Durban on the uh, east coast of southern Africa before coming back. I was absolutely exhausted. And uh, uh, my mother and I were playing cards in the lounge one evening, as we often did, and my father got to bed early. There was a shout from the bedroom. We rushed through to the bedroom, and he was having a massive heart attack in the bedroom. And uh, uh, he died uh, long before the doctor could arrive in our arms. And legs on the one side of the bed. I was on the other side of the bed, whispering encouragement and whispering love to him. I gazed across my father's quiet, quiet profile at my mother kneeling at the other side of the bed. Every heartbreaking emotion was etched on her exhausted and shattered face. In a few moments, her life had changed forever, and so had mine. We sat in silence on either side of him for a long while. It had all happened so quickly. After a time, we replaced the sheets, washed his body, combed his head, dressed him in clean pajamas. From the garden, I collected branches from his favorite flowering plant and set them beside his bed. I lit candles, and when the doctor arrived to confirm his death, I asked him to delay removal of his body for several hours, for my mother and I decided we wished to remain with him for a while. That his hands turned slowly cold in hours, and as his face grew paler and paler before us, we, signed, we sat silently together with him. Spent several hours, and we cried with him, and we spoke to him, and we said the things that we wished he said in a line. It was a very sacred farewell, and I felt that I certainly was very blessed by the meditation practice which seemed to come forward particularly strongly at that time and help us turn that situation into one that I think has served us both in terms of being able to let go and move on from his passing. So I came back to the United States after his funeral and after dealing with his estate and immediately had myself tested uh, for HIV and two weeks later here in Northampton I discovered that I too was living with AIDS. I'd lost now over 50 friends to the virus, and in an instant I kind of took my place in the community of all my friends, many of whom had died and some of whom were still alive. And the ensuing months were, as you can understand, very difficult, lots of blood tests and doctors and hospitals and stuff. And I just wanted to get back on retreat. There was this thirst to understand what was going on inside of me. I sensed the hurricane, but it just was sort of keeping it at bay as I was attending to the things that had to be attended to. I was clearly very sick, 
at the time and have been affected for a long time. And the reason I know that I was infected in 1981 was because I'd been celibate all those years since entering the monastery. So I could only have been um, infected before I entered the monastery. So today, I guess I've been about 16 years since I was uh, infected. So I, I went back to IMS to, to do another long retreat. And in the gravity of my situation, nothing made more sense than being as present and awake as possible. My confidence in the meditation practice felt more unshakable than ever before. Being on retreat felt simply like a matter of life and death now. Nothing made more sense than being as awake as possible. But in spite of my dreams of peace and quiet, all hell broke loose from the very beginning of my time at IMS. With a huge relief, I plunked myself down on my meditation cushion and was immediately gripped by a volcanic fear. Felt as though a sluice gate had opened and a vast fear poured forth from my, my belly. This is the last reading from the manuscript. It, it, it was so difficult being present with the myriad of devastating emotions that came through. The feeling was as if my life was lying in pieces around me. There was nothing that was stable. There was nothing that was dependable. I didn't know what, of course, was going to happen to me. And I was visited recurrently by images of friends who had lived with AIDS and died of AIDS, many in dreadful and tragic ways. And I felt absolutely haunted by their experience. But the miracle of the time was that it wasn't always, always bad. The sun came up beyond the wooded horizon and took the tops of the tall trees. I wandered deep into the woods one day to meditate. Took the tops of the tall trees above and around me. The silence of the new morning was broken by a full rich flattering now above my head. I glanced up and saw all the leaves of the tree under which I was resting falling down to the forest floor around me. It was incredible. In a moment I was covered in golden leaves. As I gazed upwards, the sky slowly appeared through what a few minutes before had been the dense canopy of leaves above me. Within minutes, almost every leaf had descended. A great sadness welled up within me and I burst into tears. I remember holding a tree trunk as my body was racked with tears and a wailing way beyond my censure. These were the first tears since my diagnosis. I wept for the demise of my hopes and dreams. I wept for the death of my long, secure, and predictable future. I wept for the changes which had already occurred in my body. I bemoaned the intrusion of AIDS in my life. I mourned the carefree and uncomplicated life that now felt like a distant memory. And I cried for the pain of a life that now seemed so utterly fragile, unpredictable, insecure, and terrifying. Images of Ron, my father, then arose, and I felt for the first time the searing heartbreak of having lost my dad. So much had happened so quickly since he had died. His last had been put on hold until this leaf stream morning six months later. I cried because we never really knew each other. He had been as much a mystery to me as I'm sure I was to him.
But the worst part of that retreat was yet to come, and I've written from this, but I've decided not to read it this evening. Um, a couple of months later on that retreat, uh, I started experiencing incredibly strong pressures in the meditation practice, unusual ones, the gentle area in my head, and the outcome of this long process, which I've written about in some detail because I think it's useful, is that I started having memories of sexual abuse that happened when I was an infant. It happened long before I was even able to speak. And a whole series of pieces of information that came forward indicated beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person who abused me was my father. And I felt that in this retreat, I'd cracked like an egg completely and felt completely open and vulnerable. And this was the information that came up at that time. And what I've done is I've told the story of my father in the book, and it's written already. As I understand his life, and Adelaide and I have spoken a lot about it, and we've talked a lot about it. And I believe I understand how and why it happened. And it certainly did not have anything to do with any sort of self-titillation or anything of that nature. It was an act out of his confusion and out of his sort of misguided sense of, of love and devotion to me and concern for me that this happened. But that it happened is unquestionably true to me. And so this is really where the manuscript is written up to date. It's 1991. Uh, and uh, on this visit with Adelaide, we've spoken a lot and recorded a lot and I'm going to proceed now to tell Adelaide's story and the story of our um, last years together since my diagnosis, since my father died. We've traveled a long road. I returned to South Africa uh, after this retreat to tell her of my diagnosis. It felt very important that she not be kept from that information. So I traveled to South Africa and six months after my dad died, she found out that I had and then six months later, she came to North America, and I told her about my father. And we pledged, after my dad died, never ever to protect one another from the truth again, which was a dynamic that had featured prominently in our family. And so we had this commitment to be really honest. And what has happened over these years, and the manuscript must tell this story, is that Adelaide and I have got to a place today where um, when she leaves on Monday, to South Africa, we both know that we'll say goodbye really with no unfinished business between us. She is the greatest friend I have, the staunchest ally, and we've traveled this road together in every way that it's been possible. I am so proud of my mother. She has inspired this journey and given me so much strength. It will also be the story, uh, I just need a moment. It's so hard for us living 10,000 miles away from each other. She's 77 years old, she doesn't mind saying that. <laughs> She's 77 years old, you know, I'm 47, but I'm dealing with this disease. In a way, we kind of in the same boat. We don't know, and it could happen any moment. Of course, it could happen to any of us any moment, but in a way, this is a more sort of tragic 
story we got this out of it. I can be a little dramatic. Uh, and it's always hard to see goodbye. In the book, I, I just want to give you a, just, a, just a little bit of a sense before ending. Um, I tell, you know, of my years at the boarding school in South Africa. I also tell of my time in the army. I was conscripted into the South African army. It was a dreadful experience for me, but I learned a lot and grew a lot there. And my years at university, I was actively involved in anti-apartheid politics, and I speak about um, uh, the uh, protesting and the tear gas and the, the, the violence that happened on campus there. And then, you know, I speak of having to leave the country because if I'd stayed there, it seemed very clear that I probably would have ended up in jail. I tell us in the story of the grassroots political work that I did uh, working with Zulu kids, one of the happiest uh, junctures of my life, uh, working at a Zulu school and bringing white schools and black schools together um, in Zululand. It was wonderful. I'm just going to mention this, but maybe in the time that we have for dialogue and discussion, if it needs to be discussed further, it can happen there. But the book must also say that I am surrounded by the most incredible circle of friends. I have people all over the world, and particularly around here in Northampton, many of whom are sitting before me tonight, who cheer me on in ways that I never thought friends could ever do. I can really say that without the love that embraces me, I truly doubt whether I would be here this evening. People have joined me on this journey. I know that I'm not alone. And that gives me the courage and the determination to fly higher than I've ever done in spite of what it is that I'm living with. I've learned the meaning of family and friendship in Northampton. And I'm so grateful for that. It makes it much easier to die whenever that's going to happen. And believe me, it won't happen soon if I have anything to do with it. <laughs> it's just a privilege to live here. The other thing I want to say is, you know, I just have this idea that I've got to go to Boston, I've got to go to New York or San Francisco to get the best medical attention. It's like, you know, these guys in Happy Valley, what do they know about AIDS, you know? And for the first years, I used to make these trips out to wayward places, you know, to see all the experts. But really, what is true is that my doctors, my healthcare people, some of whom are here this evening, are the most incredible bunch of people who have gathered around me and cheered me on. And I'm quite certain that nowhere else in the world could I have access to better healthcare than I get here. And this idea that we are a country community and out of the mainstream is a delusion. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to acknowledge the expertise and the support in all the ways, not only um, allopathic medicine, but all the complementary therapies as well. My doctor said to me the other day, uh, you know, the big question in my life these days is do I go on to protease and inhibitors, which are these very strong new generation of drugs that you no doubt have all heard about. And I, you know, that's a card I've yet to play. Like last week I had my blood drawn. So it's like last week's blood is going to be next week's numbers game when we see the numbers and we decide what am I going to do. And 
what drugs I'll change or what drugs I won't change. And he said to me, he said, yes, you know, there's the issue of protein, which is important, but he said, I think that your new puppy, Frodo, who some of you know, he said, I think he's going to be far better medicine than any protease inhibitor. <laughs> I thought, far out, you know. This is, this is the doctor of me. Um, I speak of, my, of some of my relationships, some of the men I've loved in my life, uh, in the book, and also about my travels. You know, I lived in Iran for four years, had a wonderful time there, and a difficult time, and was there during the revolution. And, uh, the last thing that I would like to say before closing is, in the last year, it has been my great delight to be able to do exactly what I'm doing this evening. I've been able to do some teaching again, which I haven't done for three years since the book was published. I've just been, uh, I still think it's been possible for me. And so this year I've begun teaching, I work in the local school system, I speak to kids about AIDS, I speak to them about racism, I show them slides about South Africa and tell them what it means to grow up in a country where people are separated from one another and how, how unthinkable it must be to each of them to do the same over here. I also, uh, in a few weeks, meet again with 350 students at UMass. Um, uh, they, uh, I spent the morning with them. They're all doing a course called the Microbiology of Cancer and AIDS, and uh, I'm their sort of live specimen <laughs> once every semester, and I love that too. And it's you know it's really wonderful because all these strangers come out to me in the streets. Like I was in the paint store a couple of months ago, and this woman said, "Are oh, you Mr. Harrison?" And I said, "Yes." You know, all these people there. She said, "Oh, you know, I was uh, at Albie Reiner's class." Uh, when you spoke, you were awesome. <laughs> so I said, oh, you know, thank you. And then, of course, everybody came over and said, what happened, you know? So I said, well, tell them. So, you know, she told them, and everybody, you know, who got to hear that I'm living with AIDS and, and everything. And it was so wonderful to be able to be as frank and as open everywhere, even in the paint store. What a, what a privilege to live in this community. And the other thing is, returning again to do some, some teaching, meditation, talking about meditation, teaching retreats, which I do here in Northampton and around New England. Uh, it's the greatest happiness and brings the greatest sense of fulfillment I've ever known. And I'm doing it again, and I pray that one day I might be healthy enough to return to South Africa and serve there, because um, there's a darkness there that um, is calling out for people to go and help. So I'd like to end with the prologue of Beyond My Wildest Dreams, if I may. For as long as I can remember, each evening my mother joined me at my bedside and we said our goodnight prayer together. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Pity my simplicity and suffer me to come to thee. She would then pull the curtains closed, kiss me goodnight on the lips, and shut my bedroom door. Remember that? <laughs> For a few wonderful nights every month, the light fell brightly through my bedroom window, jolting me awake and summoning me from sleep. Not even the curtains could keep that light from reaching me. 
If the, heavy, if the heavy African storm clouds did not hang thick, dark, and low across the night sky, the light would call me outside once again. Quietly, I'd slip down from my bed, and in my pajamas, I'd cross the room to the door. In the brightness, I would stretch up to the handle and slowly pull it down, careful to make no noise whatsoever. If an owl hooted, or the crickets were particularly noisy down by the nearby stream, I would feel a little bolder as I slipped into the passageway. I always knew if my father was asleep, his grumpy snoring reverberated to every corner of the house. If my mother's bed did not creak or groan, I was safe and quietly crept down the long passageway, turned right and came to the front door of the house. Here I had to be careful. Reaching up once more, I grabbed the key and slowly turned it in the lock. The click of the latch always seemed so loud. Once my mother awoke at this point and I hid behind the living room chair when her springs creaked and she arose from her bed. I held my breath as she walked down the passageway to investigate the sound that had disturbed her. Fortunately, she did not notice my open bedroom door and soon returned to sleep. Now was the most exciting part. Again, I would stretch up, grab the handle, pull it down. The heavy door silently opened before me and I glimpsed the wonderland that beckoned me outside. Bright silvery moonbeams reached down to me as I walked along the garden path to the open grass lawn below the house. Every dewdrop sparkled and laughed in the light. Stars twinkled across the heavens and the great round kind moon smiled down at me and held me safely in his lovely light. I was back, safe, alone, and filled once more with that joy of being in the happiest place on earth. When the magnolias were in bloom, their fragrance hung heavily in the air. The huge flowers hung like colossal clouds on the branches above my head. The snowdrop lilies danced in the moonlight, and I would lie down on the grass beside the tiny flowers and look up into their white hearts and see the stars above me through their liquid petals. But my favorite moment was when the great old cactus beside the front door burst into bloom one night a year when the moon was big and round in the sky. Huge long white trumpet flowers reached skywards as they opened their petals to drink the moonbeams for a single night. I would run to every corner of the garden and dance and spin in delight and happiness. No one could hurt me here. No one could interrupt me here. All else fell away save the love and perfect joy I felt. Me and the moonlight, alone for now in the fragrant silvery air of the African morning. At some point, the light stopped calling me. My bedroom door remained closed all night. Soon the moonbeams fell alone on the cactus flowers, and the next day I would see the sad, sodden, droopy blossoms hanging limply from the prickly leaves. Perhaps the clouds moved in and did not leave, but I never again saw the midnight snowdrops. Neither did I drink the magnolias in the light that once held me so tenderly and in which I felt completely safe and happy. Perhaps it was the arguments about his drinking that did it. Or could I way back then have felt the fear abroad in the land beyond my little sacred and secret midnight garden? Certainly my 
dispatched to boarding school far from home, severed completely the geographic core to my magic life in the perfect moonlight. And I'm sure the loneliness of my separation from home and the pain of and confusion of all that happened in that young, faraway place, obliterated memory of the complete life, love I once knew. Perhaps it was the unwelcome icy hands forcing their way into my bed in the dark hours of early morning that almost destroyed the safety of the night together. And then there was those glittering bullets, the weapons of war, the tear gas, and the truncheons of my young, young life catapulted me way beyond the last vestiges of light to a new, bigger, bewildering world thousands and thousands of miles away from my homeland. As I wandered to faraway countries searching for meaning and a purpose in living, a darkness deeper than a moonless night settled tightly about my quivering heart. And then one day, the darkness finally entered my bloodstream unleashing a firestorm within me. So many hopes, dreams, imaginings splintered and disintegrated as my body and heart reeled and ricocheted within the walls that towered above me. No light crept into this windowless darkness as I groped for a memory of light to sustain me. And then, in the end, there was the night of pitch black recollection when from its ancient grave arose the memory of a violence from my first months of life. The imagined sanctuary of my earliest moments shattered in an instant and crumbled to a heap of bitter, bereft disbelief around me. The darkness felt absolute. All I know is that I surrendered and relinquished the memory of safety I once felt as I danced in the early morning dew with my pajamas wet and sticky to my knees. I no longer had a refuge, a sanctuary, a sacred reminder that all was well and that everything would be fine too. I forgot the perfect love. I forgot what was possible and entered the dark night all alone. And yet, within this barren wasteland, a glimmer of light did eventually come. Far off, almost indiscernible, beyond the silhouette of its barren landscape, a soft glow beckoned me for an instant, and the great journey home began at last once more. In that glimmering moment, unbeknownst to me, my footfalls inclined once more towards the love I thought was lost forever. When the firmament above and about me hung heavy and dark like a thick black African thunderstorm, the shaft of light and possibility did from time to time reach down and bless me with intimations and promises of a return to that love I'd almost completely forgotten. Now, over 40 years later, I return to that fledgling child and gently gather him to my heart. I feel his tears and cradle his heart in my sad hands. He begins to know that it is safe to spread his silvery wings and head for the light once more. Together, we slowly unshackle the heavy chains about his ankles as he takes flight and looks towards the heaven he long, long ago forgot. Despite the fear and the darkness, hand in hand we come to know together that all is not lost. 
that assuredly we will and can come home to that love that once held us. We have fallen certainly and stumbled often. We armored ourselves and closed up like a clam, but now like one of those glorious moonbeams of long ago, like one of those stars beckoning us through the petals of the snowdrop, we will no longer accept a life without love. We have remembered our possibility, and now nothing less than the moon will do. If a glass of water were a cure for AIDS, nevertheless, millions upon millions of women and men in Africa would die of this dreadful disease. Today, entire cultures, whole villages have been wiped from the face of this earth by this disease. We here, I, have so much to be grateful for when in Africa they have next to nothing. In closing, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to join me in remembering those people who are so much less fortunate than I am. I have a piece of music that I'd like to play for the next few minutes from South Africa that means the world to me. Thank you.
really discussion of dialogue needs to happen. Big part you repeat what you said. Oh, um, she was expressing appreciation for my honesty and openness.
Um, I, uh, there is an ongoing group that meets here in Northampton every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 o'clock, and there are programs uh, in the foyer concerning that group. What happens is different teachers come at different times during the year and spend an evening. I have committed myself to being regularly um, present with that group once a month, more or less, you know, as it works out. I'm testing how much I can do now. I would love to do this a lot more than, than I probably am able to. And I can't do this if it's going to hurt me. And I'm trying with all my heart to do as much of this as possible. So I'm as present as can be, and the people that um, have organized this group and uh, have made it possible um, are doing an incredible job of getting some of the most extraordinary teachers. As they come to IMS, teach from all over the world, often they will come and do a talk here. So they meet regularly every, uh, every week. Sometimes it's teach, sometimes there's a video, sometimes there's a tape talk, readings from a book. But that is one way to connect with other people who are committed to a meditation practice. It's also a way of meeting different teachers who have different teaching styles. And then, you know, beginning to find one's own place in the spectrum of, of the different ways in which the teachings of the Buddha are taught. Um, there isn't an organization in Northampton uh, that is in the tradition that uh, you know, I've trained in or you know, spent my time in. But uh, there's the Inside Meditation Society Barry, which is a residential place where you can do retreats. Um, Dexter, who's sitting over there, he's the fine gentleman there with the white beard. If anybody has any questions about the group, may they speak to Dexter? that uh, program that there are addresses and telephone numbers to find out everything that's happening in Barry. Bye, Jensen. Thank you. Bye. There um, are two things. I'm, those who know me also know that I'm quite a dizzy guy, and there are two quite important things that I've forgotten to say. One is um, the manuscript Beyond My Wildest Dreams will also document what is such a blessing in my life these days is that I've reconnected with the teachings of Jesus Christ in a way that I never ever thought would happen. I sort of left Christianity after my experience of boarding school, was so happy to find the Buddha and thought that I found my guy forever. And now to my delight, I realized really what's happened is that I have really opened to wherever there is truth and love being practiced and served. And in recent years, it has been my great privilege and blessing and delight to have immersed myself to some degree in the teachings of Christ that are coming to me in a number of different ways, both in a more formal and a less um, structured way. So I, I want to acknowledge that. 
The other acknowledgement I'd like to do, now I wouldn't be here till midnight if I was to acknowledge everybody who blesses my life and makes a big difference, but my spiritual brother and very great friend and fellow South African, Michael Chandler, who's sitting in the front here,